This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intricasso. During this podcast, we'll discuss the climate crisis with Dr. Georges Benjamin, Executive Director of the American Public Health Association. Dr. Benjamin, welcome to the program. David, thank you for having me. Dr. Benjamin's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, with daily average atmospheric CO2 readings beyond 412 parts per million, it is unsurprising last month was the hottest June worldwide in recorded history. It appears July will be the same. This calendar year will likely be one of the warmest worldwide or one of the 11 warmest since 2000. As I've noted previously, there is no climate analog for this century for at least the past 50 million years. Also unsurprising, the climate crisis substantially explains the fact our planet is currently experiencing its sixth mass extinction, for the previous five were also caused by high CO2 concentrations. The worst of these extinguished 90% of planetary life. One word explains what, the fed, what federal policymakers and healthcare industry leaders are doing to address the climate crisis, and as well our so-called now echo-anxiety, and that's nothing. Not only does the White House and the Republican Party refuse to admit the reality but in the Juliana case, the Justice Department is arguing the plaintiffs have, quote-unquote, no fundamental constitutional right to a stable climate system or, quote-unquote, a climate system capable of sustaining human life. House Democrats refuse to move any meaningful legislation, not even to put Republicans on the record opposing maintaining life on Earth. As for the healthcare industry, it refuses to reduce or even recognize largely its own greenhouse gas pollution at over 660 million metric tons annually. That kills upwards of 100,000 Americans. As I've noted, uh, if the industry was its own country, it would rank 13th worldwide in CO2 emissions. In addition, the industry has made little or no effort to divest in fossil fuels and along with industry trade associations, has done no lobbying for requisite federal policy changes. Listeners may be aware this is my eighth climate crisis interview or climate crisis-related interview since last October. So with that as uh, a sobering uh, background, uh, Dr. Benjamin, I make these opening remarks uh, for the specific purpose of asking you uh, most broadly, what's your assessment of current state of play relative to the crisis? Well, you know, David, it, it, uh, it's a challenging environment. You've got um, the administration, which is rolling back uh, regulatory um, activity with the Environmental Protection Agency that, that most of us feel, in fact, even people in the industry feel, uh, are beneficial. Um, the, the good news, bad news part of that is that they've uh, made some attempt at rolling back those regulations, but so far we've most, and mostly we've been able to stop them in the courts. Uh, secondly, I think you're right. I think that there is um, a lack of, of real uh, momentum in Congress um, to, to really address the problems, although, you know, we've got a, a huge crack, and we're increasingly hearing more and more 
um, people on both sides of the aisle, certainly Republicans, saying that uh, climate change is real and we need to do something about it. Um, I actually ended up um, at a hearing today um, on climate change, and it was, a, it was the budget committee, of all things, and they were looking at the fiscal implications of climate change. And so uh, in that committee, there were several members on both sides of the aisle who acknowledged climate change is real and we need to do something about it. Um, the downside is, uh, as you know, we, as you said, we don't have any real legislative action to do the kind of really aggressive, proactive things that need to happen um, that are going to make a difference. Thank you. I will say on the House side, and this is uh, Representative Tonko's uh, committee, that the Republican Shimkus is pretty um, uh, clear about his views, um, positive views on uh, recognizing the problem and the need to uh, address it. Uh, so thank you for that. Let's, uh, let me move on to uh, Dr. Benjamin, uh, and I'll, I'll set this up by reading uh, the conclusion from a recent UN report. This is the late June report by uh, Philip Alston, who's the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights. He's also an NYU law professor, and he recently released, again in late June, a 21-page document called Climate Change and Poverty. And the first two sentences of uh, his summary read, quote-unquote, climate change will have a devastating consequence for people in poverty, even under the best-case scenario, hundreds of millions will face food insecurity, forced migration, disease, and death. Later in the report, he uses the phrase climate apartheid to describe the privatizing solutions to the problem, i.e. the wealthy will escape overheating hunger conflict while the rest of the world is left to suffer. That's his phrase. So I cite that because public health is largely concerned with health equity or defined as allowing everyone to have the opportunity to attain their full health potential. And I know your um, Climate Health uh, Center, uh, its third uh, word is the Center for Climate Health and Equity. So in that context, or in context of uh, Philip Austin's report, um, how legitimate, uh, and obviously the question answers itself, but I'm interested in your views, how legitimate is the federal government and industry's concern for health equity? Well, you know, we know for sure um, that the people that most at risk um, for events that happen from, from this climate debacle that we have um, about to hit us um, are uh, vulnerable populations, communities of color, um, particularly um, communities that are low income. Um, we've already seen it. We saw it after uh, what happened after Hurricane Katrina and Rita. Uh, we saw it in Houston. We saw it in Puerto Rico. Mm -hmm. um, we've even seen it in communities where there have been wildfires um, or floods. And we know that communities that have um, the resources to recover recover much quicker than those communities that don't. So it's, it, we, we know that that's true. And so that's, that's a big challenge that we have here. Um, on a global scale, it's even worse um, because uh, at least low- and middle-income countries uh, really are going to have a real challenge. And they're already beginning to see real challenges with things like drought, um, et cetera. And, you know, to some degree, obviously, um, because of our affluence as a nation, we're buffered a little bit from that, but not forever. And so I think that uh, um, we're going to see more and more inequities when um, severe things happen. You know, when a, a large power outage occurs, um, 
you know, we can work to get everybody's power back on, but the people who are, are last to get their power on are, are going to be significantly impacted. And that tends to be um, those communities that um, can't adapt. And so that's, that's what I'm very much concerned about. And public health needs to be part of both the conversation and the solution. Thank you. I'll, I'll note that uh, I did see recently a statistic concerning the Ninth Ward, since you mentioned Katrina in New Orleans. Significant percent of that population, of course, African-American, has not been able to return home. In fact, likely now, so many years later, will never. And relative to countries or poorer countries, uh, there's an inverse relationship, of course, between the amount of uh, greenhouse gas emissions they emit into the atmosphere um, uh, is inverse uh, to the amount of suffering uh, they'll be exposed to. Um, so, um, uh, sadly, uh, true. Let me go uh, to uh, the American Public Health Association, as I noted, uh, runs the Center for Climate Health and Equity. But before I ask you about specifics about uh, your activities through the center, I, I do want to ask you about funding. A lot of this always comes down to funding, public health funding, research funding. Um, this was actually a question uh, the Washington Post recently uh, published, and it was posed by the University of Washington professor. Um, uh, you probably know she contributed to the uh, countdown, last countdown, Lansing Countdown Report. In fact, I always mispronounce her surname. I'm a little hesitant. It's Chris E-B-I, E-B or E-B-I. And the question she she posed was relative to climate change research. And um, she had calculated uh, that um, the NIH currently spends $17 million annually or 0 0.04% of its $39 billion budget on climate crisis-related research. So my question for you is why, uh, in this sense, is the NIH so slow to understanding the relationship with the environment and the health, or uh, I'm sure this is a frustration to you relative to trying to advance your center's goals, but it, it is certainly perplexing why it is that the research community has been slow, so slow to fund uh, this would pretty apparent uh, connection and relationship. What's your understanding? You know, we, we were um, the organization that really pushed very, very strongly to um, get um, health in the existing legislation for climate change uh, several years ago. And we also worked very hard to actually get the first appropriation in the CDC's budget uh, for climate change. It's now around $10 million in the Center for Disease Control and Prevention's budget. And we're advocating now for another $5 million increase to that budget uh, in this current budget cycle. Um, yeah, you know, it, it, it had previously been viewed as a, an issue of polar bears and ice melting and environmental destruction, which, of course, it is. But the impact is on us, on mm -hmm. people, and on our health. So, you know, we, for the last decade, have been shouting to anyone who will listen that uh, it is a health issue, we need to pay more attention to it. And, you know, you're beginning to see more and more studies that are occurring. Um, and they're funded by a variety of agencies, EPA, uh, prior, to, prior to this current administration, of course, EPA, um, NIH, um, and, of course, CDC is doing a lot of work around both the science as well as the um, both mitigation and adaptation part of this, of this equation. Um, but it's not enough. I mean, the, the funding that, that goes to CDC, I think, goes to about 16 states. So all states are not uh, receiving um, funding to support 
you know, climate change activity. And that's on top of the fact that as a nation, um, Congress has begun reducing the amount of preparedness funds that um, poured in after 9-11 and the anthrax letters. So a weakened public health infrastructure base, uh, a growing problem, and the lack of research, um, partly due to the fact that, you know, folks just weren't paying attention, uh, and partially due to the fact that funding had not been dedicated to do that. Thank you. So per uh, the public health issue or health issue generally, of course, uh, the category this gets defined under typically in, the crime, in relation to the climate crisis is vector-borne diseases. Um, and uh, Zika, of course, gets a lot of attention properly, but then uh, dengue's come to the U.S. And, and numerous others. Let's go to the center and its activities now. I will say first, though, I, I do want to applaud and applaud you. The American Public Health Association has been on this subject for several years now. It's, it's always interesting to me and depressing that other professional and trade associations in healthcare are not. Uh, but you have been for several years, and I'll just make note. I know when, speaking of the CDC, pulled out uh, their funding for sponsoring a three-day conference on this subject soon after the last presidential election. I know you stepped up with several others. You held a one-day meeting at the Carter Center to discuss uh, the climate crisis, so uh, you should be applauded uh, for that, uh, stepping in to fill uh, the void. So let's go to the center's efforts. Could you give me a general overview, again, the Center for Climate Health and Equity? Well, we launched this new center um, last November um, under the leadership of um, um, Shirley Patel, uh, who has been very much involved in our climate work and our environmental work here at APHA. And the intent was for us to, even though we've been involved in the climate um, and health activity for over 10 years, that there really wasn't a center that was dedicated to the public health impact of climate change through an equity lens. So we want to use this center's um, activity to both continue to raise the visibility of the impact of climate change on our health, but again, through an equity lens. And in doing so, um, bring out some of the the problems and, and thoughts that you just talked about, the fact that there are populations that are very climate sensitive and that they're not going to do well uh, unless we address up front many of the social determinants that have to be addressed as part of their communities, um, helping lo- state and local health departments build capacity so that they can both respond to climate change um, as well as um, help their communities adapt to the changes that are happening around them. And, and then finally, for us to be able to partner across this this vast discussion um, to promote um, reductions in um, fossil fuel use and CO2 in our, in our, uh, in our air and, and all of the other toxic gases uh, in a much more comprehensive way. So this is a, a leadership function that we think was very important for us to do. Um, and, of course, um, we're always looking for, uh, for ways for us to engage other, other groups, particularly health organizations, as part of this process. Okay, thank you. I did note, and I will post a link to this along with uh, our our discussion, and that is in 2016, uh, you posted or issued the Climate Change and Health Strategies Plan, in which you outline five strategies. I'll just name them uh, quickly here. Shift the narrative, serve as a science and policy resource, influence and advance climate policies, galvanize action, 
and strengthen APHA's related organizational infrastructure. I'm particularly interested in number three or the third um, uh, a strategy. Again, uh, influence and advance climate policies. Uh, could you sp uh, speak more um, uh, specifically to that? Well, there, there's still a, a many, many people that have not had the opportunity to understand um, both in the link between climate change and health, and then from a policy perspective, what can we do about it? Uh, and so we're, we're using the, the center's um, resources and the center's um, connections um, to help people make that case. So let, let's, let's talk about what some of those, those things certainly are in terms of um, on the response side of this, um, heat waves. You know, we just went through a, a week of, of terrible heat waves mm -hmm. um, around most of the United States. Um, the good news is that most of our, our central cities have learned how to, A, educate their public about it, um, identify those populations that are most vulnerable, and get them to, to places that are cool. Um, but not everyone. We, we had almost 8 to 10 deaths um, during this, um, this current heat wave. And as you know, um, we, will, we will see other deaths. That number will go up over time just because uh, of the delay in reporting. Um, in some of those cases, those were preventable deaths. So we want to make sure that people understand what those policies are around response that are important. Also, we're beginning to have a lot of internal discussion around what energy policies that we ought to promote um, from a public health perspective and how to get the public health community um, and its leaders more um, knowledgeable about those uh, energy policies. Uh, we, we know reducing the utilization of fossil fuels is number one on the list, but there are other things that we can do as part of that process as well. Okay, thank you. I'll just note, speaking of um, uh, state, local government work, I, I did notice today in the New York Times there is a good lengthy piece on what California is doing, what they have been doing to prepare the extent they can for the wildfire season, which is becoming almost year-round now. Uh, so I'll make reference to it. I thought it was well done, and it's amazing the amount of work and preparation the state has done. So I found that particularly uh, related or interesting. Let me ask, um, uh, stay with us, and that is uh, your first strategy, again, shift the narrative, is largely about uh, messaging. And I'm going to ask you about that because uh, it's been my view for several years that coverage of this subject uh, in major media outlets has been particularly weak. And just to give you an example, uh, again, we know this has been widely cited in 16, the president, no presidential candidates were queried on this subject or this topic was undiscussed during the debates. And I'll just cite you a few others. Between 17 and 18, broadcast coverage of the climate crisis dropped 45%. The last year of... Um, uh, uh, the la and I'll add, uh, last year, rather, the four major TV broadcasters uh, combined spent less than three hours uh, on the topic. Um, so I, I applaud your effort to try to shift the narrative or provide more narrative. What's your sense of why, are, why is media outlets, uh, so particularly healthcare outlets, uh, lagging on this? Is it, is, I mean, well, is it know, simply a learning curve? It's a learning curve, and the number of assaults to um, our health and the healthcare enterprise uh, 
uh, continue to grow, you know, whether it's trying to take away our health insurance, um, whether it is um, removing, you know, um, good, reg- good policies around um, to improve our health, whether it's taking away food stamps um, so that we um, increase food insecurity. We are, we're, we're fighting so many battles today uh, that climate change in many people's minds sees just as just one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, I've always said that this is the greatest public health threat that we have. Um, so you're right, raising that visibility is very important. And also shifting that narrative from polar bears to people. We love polar bears. We love melting ice. You know, we know that it happens. Um, and we're hoping to stop the, the, the melting of the ice. Um, but this is, and from our perspective, this is about people. This is about our health. This is about our health and safety. Right. I'm sure you're well aware of the uh, IPCC report out uh, last October. Uh, what's the difference, ostensibly a study of what's the difference of warming between 1.5 and 2 degrees centigrade. And the difference, if we keep uh, temperatures no higher than 1.5 on average, is we will save uh, 150 million lives worldwide. So this is obviously very uh, definitely about um, uh, people, uh, not just morbidity, mortality as well. Um, To uh, be a bit more uh, positive here, I'm sure you're well aware, and the terms used is subnationals. There are any number of states, cities, again, uh, local governments, academic institutions, your association, um, industries, et cetera, who are working uh, on their own or in collaboration and trying to address this. So my question is, to what extent have you been able to partner or outreach uh, with these so-called subnationals? I will say their combined efforts per actual Hill testimony earlier this year uh, is substantial, however, uh, the guesstimate is, uh, despite all the best efforts, uh, subnational efforts combined will leave us falling one-third short of the Paris Climate Accord, a commitment or agreement the U.S. made, and, of course, Paris. Those numbers are already seeing, uh, seeming to be um, out of date. So, again, uh, your work with subnationals. Yeah, we, we, most of our work has been, has been at the national level and certainly trying to um, speed up the work of state and local health departments has been something important. Um, on the global scale, working through the World Federation of Public Health Associations, uh, trying to get them energized around um, doing these through national public health associations has also been very important to us. Um, and as you know, we, of course, have affiliates in each of our states, mm-hmm. and we're trying to help their, grow their capacity so that they can um, work on both regionally and locally to try to address this. Of course, all of our, um, you know, legislative efforts, um, when we put out a, a legislative alert, we try to get all of our members, wherever they are, both locally um, to address U.S. issues and then, of course, globally uh, to try to address things that are more global. Just to say at the local and alert, I'm sure you probably read recently the Ohio governor signed uh, a nuclear and coal bailout at the expense of renewable energy, so obviously an instance of stepping in the uh, uh, opposite or wrong direction. I, 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 I will ask, uh, this is a related question, I'm curious to know, you probably read, speaking at the national level, uh, that Extinction Rebellion was added again, this is the organization based out of the UK, and uh, 16 or 17 protesters were arrested 
on Capitol Hill last night. Uh, on the House side, uh, I read one was as young as 22. Um, they recently probably know as well, protested outside of the New York Times a couple weeks ago. Uh, to what extent are you lending uh, your reputation, your efforts to mostly, these are obviously mostly uh, youth efforts, appropriately, I guess. Um, to what extent are you working with these organizations or trying to? Well, we're trying to certainly encourage uh, our youth to be more involved. Um, Try not to get arrested, right? We, and not get arrested. <laughs> um, just the other day, we had a, a, a youth boot camp, um, which got to both the graduate level and undergraduate level for people that were interested in public health. Um, we had a couple hundred um, young folks come to town, and they um, spent a day learning about advocacy efforts. And then on day two, they stormed the hill and talked to their legislative um, leaders around climate change. And so that was a theme for this year's uh, student boot camp. So that is our attempt to begin that process uh, of engaging um, the folks that um, uh, hopefully are going to be able to take care of me when I get old. And certainly they're all actively engaged in, in this leadership issue. As you know, they're energized. They're well-educated on these issues. Um, and they're motivated to do something. And so I think that um, having the youth of today go out and talk to our legislative leaders, both at the national level, and hopefully we encourage them then to go back home to the local level and talk to their city members of city council, county council, mayors, um, uh, anyone, again, who will listen, um, parents, family members, uh, to get them motivated to uh, speak out for the climate, speak out for our health. So let me let me follow up on that. Uh, relative to engaging uh, youth, what would you say about how uh, listeners here could outreach or reach out to the American Public Health Association? What would be the best way to do that? Well, we have a student assembly, so we encourage people to get involved with our student assembly um, and um, and participate. We have a, a national campaign called Speak for Health. Um, and so getting involved with uh, that and getting on our listserv uh, allows you to get information from APHA that we share broadly uh, and to participate. We have a, um, a very, very uh, engaging um, Twitter activity, a um, um, whole social media program where we do, um, obviously we have a Facebook page and we have a Twitter, um, but we have over 800,000 followers and growing involved in that effort. And so... I, I know that the youth of today are, are much more engaged uh, in the social media space than when I was growing up, um, and, and and even now, um, I, I'm less of a social media person than um, than my kids are, and I, and so I think there's an amazing way for them to get involved with APHA. Obviously, um, if they're so inclined, we always encourage people to become members uh, and participate in our activities uh, as a member. But you know, we have. Um, we have over 50,000 members and over 800,000 followers. So all the people engaged with us absolutely are not um, paid members. Um, so we're excited to have you as part of our our, um, our our movement as part of that process. And it is a movement. It's a public health movement to protect our health. Okay, we have time. I'll just ask a similar question as our last or going out question, and that is, uh, again, uh, the focus here in part, the Center for Climate, Health, and Equity, how can listeners 
become more involved or help uh, move the center's goals forward? I think um, first go to our website, the www.apha.org. That's www.apha.org. Um, look at the materials. Um, um, get involved um, as much as you can. You can. We have links to our our, uh, our Facebook page there, our Twitter account, and um, just get involved with us um, at, at APHA. And we also have affiliates in every state. And on the affiliate section under the component part of our website, uh, I'll tell you how to get involved with all of our affiliates if you want to get more involved locally. Okay, thank you, Dr. Benjamin. We're at about our time. So I do want to say, again, I'm very appreciative uh, for this discussion. I wish the center uh, every success. Um, so thank you for this, and uh, let's hope uh, we can uh, make more progress on this more rapidly in the near future, certainly. Thank you again. Thank you, David. Appreciate it. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.